Well, take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. And uh, we have been feeling very overwhelmed by all of the um, fascinating imagery uh, that is here in the second half of the book of Daniel. But uh, this morning, we'll have a little bit of a reprieve. No mad goats, um, scary-looking beasts coming up from the ocean, uh, trying to sort out what, what is that, who is that, what does that represent. Uh, we're going to see at the beginning of this chapter, Daniel chapter 9, a very straightforward, very practical uh, section on the priority of prayer. And so let's read this section together. This is Daniel chapter 9. And I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 19. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications and fasting, sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame as it is to this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice, so that curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words, which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us, to bring on us great calamity, for under the whole heaven there was not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds, which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as it is this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, for because of our sins and the iniquity of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications, and for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary." O my God, incline your heart and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name, for we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. O my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. Father, we thank you for this truly humbling prayer that Daniel prayed. And Lord, there's so much here for us to learn from. We see what motivated him to pray. We see um, exactly how he modeled prayer for us. And I ask that your spirit would help us as we work through this section of Daniel to uh, understand 
what you want us to, to, to know here so that we can be who you want us to be, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this past week, I was caught, my attention was caught by an article in Christianity Today that was entitled, Bonhoeffer's Answer to Political Turmoil, colon, Preach, exclamation point. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as many of you know, was a German pastor who served during the rise of Adolf Hitler and throughout the Nazi regime. And on January 15, 1933, Bonhoeffer showed his pastoral insight by preaching a sermon in a church in Berlin entitled Overcoming Fear. Uh, Germany was in the midst of fearful and turbulent times. Their devastating defeat in World War I was just uh, 14 years uh, in their past. Uh, it was still fresh on the people's minds and hearts. Uh, the U.S. stock market crash in 1929 had compounded the, the problems in the already struggling German economy. Uh, the existing government of the day lacked stability and leadership and fears of communism and extremism loom large. And many Germans, including German Christians, were afraid of what the future held uh, for their country. And the aim of Bonhoeffer's sermon that day was to help them not be overcome by fear. Well, little, little did he know how timely that message was because two weeks later, the country made Adolf Hitler their chancellor. Hitler was a charismatic leader, a persuasive speaker, and he exploited the nation's fears and offered himself as their savior, as their messiah. And millions of Germans turned away from trusting God to trusting a maniac, from loving their neighbor to holocaust, all because of fear. And as this article pointed out, fear has the same potential power over us today in our country. Now, granted, the current social and political climate of the U.S. may not be as extreme as that of Germany in the early 1930s, but you can sense a pervasive fear in our country during this tense election year. The American people, including many American Christians, are scared about the threat of terrorism and the loss of religious freedoms and values and changes in the immigration system and on and on it goes. And that's why more than ever, churches need to be committed to preaching the word to encourage and comfort the hearts of God's people. And according to this article that I was reading, Bonhoeffer is typically remembered for uh, his radical Christian discipleship. He wrote that classic book, The Cost of Discipleship. Um, and also his sacrificial work in the underground resistance movement to, to um, really remove Hitler. He was even a part of the assassination attempts um, to, to, to get Hitler uh, from uh, leading their country. However, few know him for what he believed was the most central to his life and ministry, and that was this, quote, nourishing the body of Christ through the proclamation of the word. That was Bonhoeffer's main passion. In the midst of all the other things he did, he was a preacher. And the text of Bonhoeffer's sermon, Overcoming Fear, was Matthew chapter 8, verse 23 through 27, where Jesus rebuked his disciples uh, during the storm on the Sea of Galilee for their fear and their lack of what? Remember? Faith, their lack of faith. And it's a message that the church needs to hear today. And in the words of Bonhoeffer, this is what he said, and I quote from that sermon. Christ is in the boat, and this place where this kind of talk is heard and should be heard is the pulpit of the church. From this pulpit, the living Christ himself wants to speak so that wherever he reaches, uh, wherever he reaches somebody, that person will feel their fear sinking away, will feel Christ overcoming his or her fear. The Bible the gospel, Christ, the church, all are one great battle cry against fear in the lives of human beings. All that to say that in the midst of the fearful times like the ones in which we're living, not only are we to preach, as Bonhoeffer made it his 
priority during those uh, scary days in the German Empire, but we also need to pray. We need to pray. And, and preaching and praying have always been and always will be the mainstays of God's people. Whenever God's people find themselves in difficult, perilous times, they need God to speak to them through his word, and they need to speak to God through prayer. And we see the, the latter of these two necessities illustrated through Daniel's life here in the first half of chapter 9. Now, we've already learned and seen that Daniel was a man of prayer. And it's obvious uh, through other passages that we previously looked at that, that prayer played a vital, a central role in Daniel's life and ministry. Just go back to Daniel chapter 2, verse 16. If you remember, uh, this is when Nebuchadnezzar had called his wise men in to interpret this dream. And he told them this is the, the dream of the, the statue um, with the four different kingdoms. And uh, he said, hey, listen, guys, uh, I think you're playing me. And so uh, before you interpret the dream, I want you to tell me what I actually dreamed. I'm not going to tell you this time. I'm not going to tell you the dream. I'm just going to tell you. I'm just going to ask you to tell me what it was. And then you interpret it. And the guys were like, are you kidding me? No king ever asked that. It's impossible. Well, Daniel said, well, I'll give it a shot. And in Daniel chapter 2, verse 16, it says, Daniel went and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel comes running back to the dorm room. He's out of breath. He says, hey, guys, I just told the king that we, we could tell him what he, what he dreamed and, 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 and what it means, and, and, and if we don't, uh, we're all going to die, so let's pray. So they got down on their knees, and they started to pray, and this is so beautiful in, in, in this prayer. Again, we, we, this is the first prayer recorded in the book of Daniel, verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision, then Daniel blessed the God of heaven, and Daniel said, this is Daniel's prayer, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and the hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O Lord, God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. I mean, what, a, what an amazing prayer that was. I mean, we don't have time to do this necessarily in this study, but a, a good maybe secondary study uh, here in the book of Daniel would be to just study the prayers of Daniel. Just examine the prayers uh, of Daniel. Notice in chapter 6, you'll remember uh, all the other wise men got fed up with Daniel. He was always uh, being promoted. He was kind of the teacher's pet, if you will, uh, the king's pet. And so they were looking for a way to undermine him and ultimately have him killed. They they wanted him out of the picture. And so they uh, convinced the king to um, sign a decree that no one could pray to anyone but the king for a month. This is Daniel chapter 6, verse 6. And these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius lived forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials, the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be provoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document that is the injunction. And so again, they were playing his pride, right? And saying, hey, king, wouldn't it be great just for one month, you were God. You, you get to be God for a month. And no one can pray to any, anybody or any other God except you. He says, that sounds like a good idea. So he signs this injunction. Verse 10, now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, this was no mystery to Daniel what was going on, this, this, um, this plot against him, he entered his house, now in his roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. And so Daniel was 
very consistent in his prayer life, so consistent that his enemies knew that if they could catch him in anything, it would be they could catch him praying. Uh, I'm convicted by that. If someone wanted to take me down and they thought, well, let's see, I think we can, we, I know we, we can always catch that guy praying. Could they catch you praying, right? Because your prayer life so consistent that people know that you're a person of prayer like Daniel was. And so with those two passages in mind, we come to Daniel chapter 9, and again, we find Daniel praying. And in my opinion, this prayer that we just read in Daniel chapter 9, verses uh, 1 through 19, is one of the greatest prayers recorded in the Scriptures. And yet it may also be the most overlooked. I mean, when's the last time when you maybe thought about prayer or heard a message on prayer or read a book about prayer that that somebody said, hey, let's go back and, and consider the prayers of Daniel? You don't think about that. I mean, when you think about... Uh, you know, epic prayers in the Bible. What comes to your mind? I mean, Moses' prayer for, of intercession for Israel in the wilderness when God was ready to wipe them out after the, after the, uh, the, the golden calf incident. Or maybe Hannah's prayer uh, in her barrenness for a son. Or David's prayer of confession in Psalm 51. Or Nehemiah's prayer for success in rebuilding the walls of, of Jerusalem. And then, of course, in the New Testament, you have Jesus' prayers in the upper room, the high priestly prayer, or his prayer of submission in the Garden of Gethsemane, or, or any, of, any number of Paul's prayers for the churches. Well, what about Daniel's prayer in Persia for God to restore his exiled people to their homeland? I mean, this is an epic prayer. And what we see here in these verses are two essential elements of effective God-honoring prayer that that we need to emulate, we need to mimic, if you will, whenever we find ourselves in difficult, hard, frightening situations. And what we're going to see this morning is we're going to see, first of all, the motive for prayer. What, What is the motive for prayer? What should motivate us to pray? And secondly, we're going to see the model for prayer. What is an example here that we can follow in our prayers? We have it here in Daniel chapter 9. Let's look first of all at the motive for prayer. And it's here in the first three verses. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of meeting descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel. Now, just stop there for a second. We need to kind of bring ourselves up to speed in the timeline here of the book of Daniel. The events of this chapter occurred during the reign of the first king of the Medo-Persian Empire. His name was Darius or Cyrus. If you remember uh, when we introduced him back in, uh, or introduced to him, uh, first of all, in Daniel chapter 6, I said that there's some confusion um, about who Darius is, is Darius an actual name or is it more of a title like Pharaoh or Caesar? So it would be Darius Cyrus or Cyrus Darius. And so this could be the same person. Darius and Cyrus could be one and the same. And this is more of a title that seems to fit best with the timeline here as Cyrus uh, being the first king uh, of the Medo-Persian Empire. And so the year was 539 B.C., which is 67 years after Daniel had been taken into exile by the Babylonians, back in 605 B.C., uh, when they had first uh, invaded Jerusalem. So Daniel was now in his early 80s, okay? Think about that, you lamplighters, all right? Uh, Hey, this guy still had an effective, vibrant ministry in his later years. Um, He wasn't collecting seashells on the beach, right? As John Piper talks about, don't waste your life. Uh, He was still vitally involved in ministry. And so here we find Daniel in his 80s having his quiet time of all places in the book of Jeremiah. Notice his I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem namely 70 years. So what was Daniel doing? He was reading the scriptures. He was reading the scrolls. That was the form in which the Old Testament was in at the time. And and even though, and I think this is an important observation to make, even though Daniel had these remarkable visions 
and revelations. He never outgrew the need to read the Bible. And that is so different than the culture in which we live. I mean, we've kind of gotten bored of the Bible and we're out looking for some experience, some vision, some revelation, some, some really cool, uh, you know, emotional high. Um, one example I've shared with you before was, uh, I'll never forget sitting in a restaurant here in, 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 in our local community and I noticed that there was a lady over there sitting by herself reading Heaven is for Real. And uh, Kelly and I were having lunch together, and the waitress went over to serve her, and uh, she asked what she was reading, and she said, hey, I'm reading this book, Heaven is for Real, and then she said this, quote, reading this book has helped me grow closer to God more than reading my Bible. And I looked at Kelly, and I was like, did we just hear that? Did that actually just come out of that person's mouth? But, but that's the culture, the Christian culture in which we live today. You know, the Bible's good, but you know what? I'm ready to move on to something more exciting, right? I want God to speak to me. Well, guess what? He does speak to you every day when you open up his word. And so here's Daniel still being faithful to his time in the word. And has he, in, in his quiet time, he was studying the prophecies of Jeremiah, and what did he discover? Well, that Jeremiah hadn't just foretold the overthrow of God's people by the Babylonians. He was living that. Like, yep, that came true. I'm, I'm here as a result of that prophecy. But he also, Jeremiah also predicted that their exile in Babylon would last 70 years. And if you heard what I said, Daniel had been there, if you do the math, he had been there with his buddies and the rest of the people from Judah for about 67 years. Guess what? Exile's almost over. Look back at what Daniel may have read in Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against the land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about, and I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take them from the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years." Verse 12, then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. Imagine Daniel having his quiet time, reading through that and going, yep, yep, that happened, yep, yep, I was there, uh, you know, when, I, when we got... Take, uh, conquered by the Babylonians, and we were taken into exile, and, and, uh, and, and we've been here for 70, almost close to 70 years, and then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. Well, guess what? They had just been punished by Cyrus, who came and conquered uh, the arrogant Babylonians. And then notice in Jeremiah 29, this is another portion of Jeremiah that Daniel may have read that day when he was having his quiet time as he was studying the, the prophecies of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and will fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. I mean, this must have gotten Daniel pumped. Since what he was putting the pieces, he was connecting the dots here and going, guess what? The time of captivity was almost over. And according to the prophet Jeremiah, in just three years, God's people would be able to return to their homeland. Now, you're, you're familiar with that passage, I'm sure, Jeremiah chapter 29. That's one of the 
verses that we as Christians living in the 21st century love to rip out of context and apply to ourselves. I told you when I was trying to discern God's will regarding whether or not I should marry Kelly, we had broken up at one point in our relationship, and I was praying and seeking God's face and and just begging Him to show me His will, and I was looking for a sign, and I was studying His word, looking for Him to speak to me in some specific passage, and and I came to this passage, and I read, okay, the Lord has good plans for me, plans for my welfare, that's good, that's good news, I'm I'm seeking you, I'm I'm searching for you with all my heart, and and, and I'm going to restore store you, and, 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 and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. And I thought, that's it. Kelly and I are in an exile. We're broken up. And so God's telling me that he wants us to get back together again. I wish I was making that up, but I actually believe that. In fact, I ran down to my first period class, and of all places, it was a Greek class, as if we're supposed to be studying the, the original languages and know how to interpret the scriptures accurately. And I told my buddy, I said, you know what, God spoke to me today, and this is what I read, and I believe that means that I'm supposed to ask Kelly back out again, because God doesn't want us to be in exile anymore. Well, what did I do? I totally mis- misinterpreted and misapplied the scriptures. This is not talking about, sure, in general, does this principle apply that God has wonderful plans for our lives? That, that, that he wants us to seek him with all of our heart, and, and if we do, we'll find him, and he'll bless our lives. In general, is that true? Yeah, of course that's true. But we need to make sure we understand this, this passage in its original context. And, and it, listen, if, if, if there's a bunch of Christians running around, uh, in, in, you know, in this century, who get pumped up about this verse, well, Daniel was, like, super pumped up about this because it actually applied to him. He was living this thing. And so, Jeremiah, again, had warned the people of Judah that God would judge them by allowing Babylon to take them into captivity if they didn't repent of their sin. And the people just ignored Jeremiah and eventually got so fed up with this discouraging prophet. I mean, he was always just kind of the Debbie Downer, Jeremiah, the Jeremiah Downer, right? He he just kept giving these prophecy after prophecy. You guys, listen, if you don't repent... Bad things are coming. They got so frustrated and fed up with him, they threw him in a muddy pit and left him to die, kind of like quicksand. You can see that in Jeremiah chapter 38. You know that Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Why? Because he actually lived to see the fulfillment of his prophecies. Unlike most prophets, they had died long before the prophecies came to fruition, but he actually watched the siege and capture of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. He saw God's people get hauled off into captivity, and he was sitting there lamenting over that, and that's when he wrote the book of Lamentations. But the question that we should be asking ourselves is, hey, what's, what's up with the 70 years? Why did God pick 70 years. It seems like kind of a random number. Well, why 70 years? Why couldn't it have been 60 years? Why couldn't it have been 150 years? Why did he remove his people from the land for 70 years? Well, let's look into that. God had instructed his people to observe a weekly Sabbath, the Sabbath day, and also to give the land of Israel, the promised land, a Sabbath rest every seven years. And he said in Scripture, if they obeyed or if they disobeyed his command and, and didn't give the land its Sabbath rest, that he would remove them from the land so that it could get the rest that it needed. Uh, you can find this back in Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 34. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 34. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of the desolation. While you are in your enemy's land, then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of its desolation. It will observe the rest which it did not observe on your Sabbaths while you were living on it. In other words, if you don't give the land a rest, I will. And I'll pull you right out of there and just let it rest for 70 years to make up for all the years uh, that you didn't let it rest. And then later on in 2 Chronicles, this is interesting. Um, again, this, this is other, these are other uh, places where parts of Scripture that Daniel had access to. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 20. 
those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, talking about Nebuchadnezzar, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. And then the next verse, verse 22, now in the first year of Cyrus King of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with you and let him go up. I mean, this was fascinating that the king of Persia, Cyrus, was about to let God's people go back to the promised land. And so what's the point here? That, that based on these clear promises from the Lord, the fact that the Medes and Persians under King Cyrus had just overthrown Babylon convinced Daniel that the end of their captivity was right around the corner and they were about to be liberated and that stimulated him to pray. And that's what you find here in Jer- back in Jeremiah 29, that passage we talked about is, hey, God has great plans. He promises, hey, I've got a future for you. Plans for your welfare, not for calamity, give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search me with all search me with all your heart. Daniel reads that, and his immediate reaction is what? To do that. I'm gonna call upon the Lord. I'm gonna pray to him. I'm gonna seek him and find him as I search for him with all my heart. And so the promises of God inspired Daniel to pray. And we see that very clearly in Daniel chapter 9. He says that. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Talk about practically applying Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 11 and 12. He did just that. And so his study of the scriptures, and particularly the promises of God in the scriptures, motivated him to pray that God will fulfill his promise. He was just praying according to the will of God. I think this is how the word of God should affect all of us, that that studying the scriptures should stir up supplication. And and we've talked about this before, that that when you're having your quiet time, and there's there's no... perfect way or, or exactly the right way to have your quiet time. Everybody has to do what works best for them. But in general, I think it's safe to say that, that reading should come before praying. I mean, if you're going to have your quiet time, which is you know spending some time reading God's Word and spending some time praying to God, it makes sense that you read first and pray second. Why? Because, because reading the Scriptures naturally leads to what? To praying. That's exactly what we see, the model, the example, the motivation here. And so I would encourage you, when you have your quiet time, begin by reading the scriptures, and, and you should very naturally, again, and easily flow from your time in God's word to a time of prayer, where you just begin to pray the scriptures and the promises of scripture and praying the will of God um, as, as you do that. In fact, I was encouraging one of our elders today who, before our prayer time, the, the thing that first caught my attention about him and began to consider him as a potential elder was listening to him pray. And, and when he prays, he prays the Bible. I was like, wow, this guy really is a student of God's word because it's, it's, and it's evident because what comes out of his mouth when he prays, it's just, it's just filled with scripture. He just prays the scriptures. And so that's the way it should be in our lives. And so we see here the motive for prayer, again, is, is, is claiming the promises of God. Claiming the promises of God. Well, let's look at the model for prayer. The model for prayer, which is the majority of this, of this text. And again, this is one of the, 
the, the, the greatest prayers ever recorded in, in Scripture. And, and I think it's a model, really a, a pattern of how we should pray. You say, well, I don't know how to pray. I want to pray. I just don't know how to pray. Well, here's an example. Here's a, a flow of thought, if you will, that I think would be very appropriate for any Christian on any given day when you go before the Lord in prayer, you can follow this, this pattern. And let me just tell you what it is right up front, and then we'll look at it more specifically. First of all, Daniel praised the character of God. He praised the character of God. Secondly, he pleaded guilty before God. And then thirdly, he petitioned God to glorify himself. So he praised, he pleaded or confessed his sin, and then he petitioned or requested God to glorify himself. I think that's an appropriate pattern for prayer. You don't just rush into God's presence and say, hey, daddy, I need this, and I need this, and I need this, and I need this. Or you don't just go into God's presence and say, Lord, I'm just such a sinner. I think the appropriate place is to go into God's presence and just worship him and praise him for who he is. Which as you see his greatness and his glory, and then you see yourself, you know the wickedness of your own heart, and so you naturally begin to confess, right? Praise leads to pleading with God for forgiveness, because we know how wretched we are and compared to his holiness, how unholy and how unrighteous we are. And then once we've confessed our sin and we're right with the Lord, then we begin to ask him for the things that are on our heart. And ultimately, we don't ask him for things that are on our heart, but we ask him for things that are on his heart. We ask that he would accomplish his purposes. In other words, the goal of prayer is not to get our will done in heaven, but to get God's wills done on earth. Amen? And so let's look at this. So notice verse 4. He praised God's character. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Warren Wiersbe says this, it's important that we focus on the character of God and not become not become too preoccupied with ourselves and our burdens. When we see the greatness and glory of God, it helps put our own burdens and needs in proper perspective. In other words, big God, small problems. Small God, big problems, right? Wiersbe goes on, the invocation here, verse 4 to Daniel's prayer, is a primer of biblical theology. His words describe a God who is great and faithful to keep his promises, a God who loves his people and gives them his word to obey so that he can bless them. He is a merciful God who forgives the sins of his people when they come to him in contrition and confession. And so prayer must begin with praise, but then notice it leads to pleading with God for forgiveness, or a pleading uh, of guilty before God. That's what he did in in verse 5. He confessed his sins, along with the sins of his people. He acknowledged that that they all deserve to be in captivity. Notice what he says here, verse 5. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acting wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name and to your kings, to our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame as it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Jerusalem, those who are nearby, those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you, to the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord, your God, to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his prophets, through his servants and his prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice, so the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words which he has spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity, for under the whole heaven there was not been done anything like what is done to Jerusalem. 
as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. This is just one massive confession of sin. And it's like he, he confesses the nation's sin in a hundred different ways. He looks at it from a hundred different angles. And he acknowledges that, that God, I know you, you graciously sent prophets to confront your people and encourage us to turn back to you, but we ignored you and, and, and refused to heed the message. And this, this exile that we are in, we totally deserve. This is your divine discipline. And yet, if you look at all the warnings, the threats, for example, in the book of Deuteronomy, that if you disobey me, this will happen, I will curse you. God was quick to also say, if you acknowledge your sin and you demonstrate true, humble brokenness before me and you sincerely confess your sin, then I will what? Restore you. I'll restore you. That's what he always promised. For example, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 30, listen to what he says here. Verse 1, so it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I said before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And so Daniel was just taking God at his word. God, I get it. We are here in Babylon and now Persia on purpose. We, we got what we deserved. But Lord, not only did you promise to curse us if we disobeyed you, you promised to restore us if we humbled ourselves and we confessed our sin and we cried out to you, you would, you would bring us back. And so that's what he's doing. He's just simply applying the scriptures here. And so Daniel just humbly identified himself with the sin of his people as though he himself was personally responsible for it. And this is fascinating to me because if there was anyone alive at the time who could have been excused from the sin of the nation, it would have been Daniel. I mean, all we ever see about Daniel is he lived an exemplary life. The Bible doesn't say anything bad about Daniel at all. And yet he had a humble, broken, contrite heart, which the Lord loves. David said that in Psalm 51. What was the Lord looking for? Daniel knew, David knew what the Lord was looking for. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Isaiah 66, verse 2, For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That needs to be the attitude of our heart as we go before the Lord. But notice, after confessing his sin, pleading guilty before God, if you will, he petitioned God to glorify himself. Daniel petitioned God to lift his discipline and free his people from their present bondage and allow them to return to Jerusalem. Notice verse 15, And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, and it is this day we have sinned, we have been wicked, O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts. Let now your anger, your wrath, turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquity of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach and all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. 
Oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. Oh my God, do not delay because of your city and your people are called by your name. You see the focus there? It wasn't about him. It wasn't about Israel. It was about God. It's all about God. Hey, God, your name's out there. Your reputation's out there. You made promises to your people and the world knows it. And so he pleaded with the Lord to fulfill these promises concerning Jerusalem and the nation of Judah. And notice that that Daniel petitions God based on his character, his greatness, his awesomeness, his faithfulness, his righteousness, his forgiveness, his mercy, his anger, his wrath. And not only does he appeal to God based on his attributes, he appeals to God based on his interests. Hey, this is your city, your holy mountain, your people, your sanctuary, your sake, your name. What a great example for us that it must be God's cause and not our own that should engage our hearts when we pray. It's his glory that we should long for and not our own. If you want something to stimulate your prayer life, a catalyst um, for your quiet time. I'd encourage you to get a copy of The Life and Diary of David Brainerd. Anybody ever read that? Life and Diary of David Brainerd, okay? We need more hands up, okay? Um, that is a classic work. In fact, it was the most published work by Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was the one who published this young man's prayer diaries, essentially what it was. And it was the, the, the most, uh, most often published work of Jonathan Edwards. And, and basically what it is, it's a, it's a diary that Jonathan, or excuse me, that David Brainerd, who was a missionary to the American Indians in colonial America, um, basically a diary, a journal of his prayer life. And over and over and over again, he mentions how, Lord, it's not my cause, but your cause. God's glory consumed this guy. And you can tell in his prayers that he wrote out in, in this little book. I would encourage you to get it, The Life and Diary of David Brainerd. Change your life, promise. I remember when Kel and I got our hands on that back in seminary, we would lay awake at night before we went to bed and we would be reading these prayers and we were so encouraged and so convicted at this guy's passion for prayer. Well, we see that same passion here in the example of Daniel. Now, quickly, just just look at how the passage proceeds. Verse 20 Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God on behalf of the holy mountain of my God. In other words, when I was praying, while I was still speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, remember last week we were introduced to Gabriel, came to me, this is the messenger angel, um, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And by the way, in his extreme weary, weary, weariness, I mean, he, he was wearing himself out in prayer. He was exhausted. That's how, that's how passionate he was in prayer. He was exhausted. It's said that David Brainerd used to sweat when he prayed in the middle of the winter in the woods. He'd be out in the snowbank somewhere on his knees praying and he was so passionate in prayer, he'd come inside and he would have been sweating in the dead of winter, just from sheer exhaustion. I mean, talk about, so here, he was just worn out praying. And Gabriel gave me instruction and talked with me and said, oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to you to the message and gain understanding of the vision. You say, what vision? Well, it's the vision that he's about to, ha- about to see in verses 24 through 27. So while Daniel was exhausting himself in prayer, Gabriel was immediately dispatched by God uh, in answer to his prayers, and he communicated. Notice it says, for you are highly esteemed, verse 23. Where? Where's Gabriel coming from? 
He wasn't just, Daniel wasn't just highly esteemed on earth amongst his peers. He was highly esteemed in heaven, among the angels, in the presence of God. He was greatly loved by God. Daniel was precious to God. I thought when I read that phrase, for you are highly esteemed, I thought, you know, all of us have a reputation in heaven. All of us have a reputation here on earth, Right? But we also have a reputation in heaven. The question is, what's your reputation in heaven? When, 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 when the subject of you comes up in heaven between God and the angels, is there much conversation? How does God view you? How do the angels view you? And how much of our reputation in heaven is based on our faithfulness in prayer? Because that's our connection to heaven, isn't it? is prayer. The point is that Daniel was so passionate about the fulfillment of God's plan for Israel regarding the the 70 years of captivity, God says, here's my man. I can trust him with this, this next vision, this next revelation of truth. And so God revealed to him the rest of his future plan for Israel, which involved the number 70. And in verses 24 through 27, we have this 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. This has been called the backbone of biblical prophecy. It's the the key to unlocking many of the mysterious visions and dreams uh, here in the book of Daniel and also in the book of Revelation. And so again, what is the point here? In, in, In answer to his passionate prayer, the Lord granted Daniel one of the most important revelations that was ever given to any prophet in the Bible. You say, well, what was it? Well, you got to come back next week. And we'll look at this together, okay? And bring your thinking caps next Sunday because this is a deep one, okay? And it's like a big like math word problem, which I personally hate. I hated those math word problems, right? In math class, the word problems... That's what it's going to be. But in the meantime, in the meantime, don't shut your notebooks, don't shut your Bible, don't check out. In the meantime, let's imitate Daniel's example of persistent prayer by claiming the the many hope-filled promises of Scripture and calling upon the Lord and seeking Him with all our hearts. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Daniel's example of what should motivate us to pray, and this just how we should pray. What does that look like? What does that sound like? And so, Lord, you've given us a great pattern to follow here, and um, that's the easy part, locating the pattern in the scriptures, but now the hard part comes, and that's actually implementing that pattern and putting that pattern into practice this week. And, Lord, we would all confess I don't think there's anyone here that would say they're satisfied with their prayer life. It's, it's something that we're all usually convicted about because we don't do it enough. And I just pray that we wouldn't leave here discouraged this morning, but we would leave here pumped. Like Daniel got pumped. We've seen some very specific promises in the scriptures. Lord, that while they may apply to Israel, they apply to us in principle. And so, Lord, this should just motivate us to want to be on our knees and just just crowd to you and pray the promises of your word, knowing that you will hear us and we will find you when we seek you with all of our heart. I pray you grant us grace to do that this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.